friends, uh, welcome to Spirit Seekers on August 14th, 2020. Uh, my name is Lucy Samara and I serve First Congregational Church as our uh, communications coordinator. And I am so pleased to be hosting Spirit Seekers. Um, and today is a special day because Janice Clements is our spirit seeking guest. And uh, so I was looking for an opening, uh, Janice, and um, I, uh, so I, I looked through all these books that I have and I came across a book that, and there may be some people in this gathering who might be one of the ones who gave it to me. This book was given to me repeatedly by multiple people and I only kept one copy of it. It was published in 1990, but I am certain that this started happening around 2000, 2005, you know, in that kind of period of my life. Meditations for women who do too much. I, I gave you that. I gave you that, Lucy. <laughs> you weren't the only one. I saved the one you gave me. <laughs> People kept giving me this book. So I have, you have never come across to me, Janice Clements, as somebody who does too much, but as somebody who does things well. But I saw this and it made me laugh. And I thought, I'm going to find a reading for uh, today. So um, this reading is uh, by uh, Goldie Ivner, and it's called Living in the Present. I know the solution. When we have a world of only now, with no shadows of yesterdays or clouds of tomorrow, then saying what we can do will work. Imagine starting each day fresh with no shadows of yesterday or clouds of tomorrow. And uh, so I just, I, I th thought that that reading put us all right in this very moment um, today together. So if everybody but Janice can mute yourselves, we'll, we will start with our timing. So Janice Clements, very active person in First Congregational Church for a long time. Uh, you know, right now you're leading our pastoral care team. You've been on search committees and just served, served the church in so many ways and have been involved in the wider community as such an amazing advocate and educator about resources for people with serious health problems, particularly elders and um, I know many people, um, including me, have turned to you to ask you for counsel because of your thoughtful intelligence and your, your experience. Um, and that's, that's how I know you. Um, but what's been really a joy has been hearing more about your life and how you came to be this person that I consider to be a, a real leader in our community now. Um, so Janice, you grew up in a small town in New Jersey. Can you kind of take us back to, you know, your family, how you grew up, how church was first a part of your life? Um, well, you know, I don't remember a time when it wasn't. Um, yeah. um, as far back as I can remember. And um, I grew up in a little town in southern New Jersey. Uh, if you drew a line between Atlantic City and Philadelphia, it would be right in the middle on that line. And um, my, both my mother's and my father's family came from various parts of, of New Jersey. And the little town that I lived in had 3,000 people in it. And it was one mile square. So all the, it was bisected by the main street in the center one way, um, east-west, and north-south, it was bisected by the railroad tracks. Huh. And my dad always got on the train and went to work, uh, as did most of the other dads. And there were, let me see, four or five churches in this little town. An Episcopal church, a Lutheran church, a Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, that was mine. And um, I guess just the four. And the Catholic church was in a neighboring town. And back in the day, we had release time from school to go to religious education classes. So we each went to our own church and the uh, Catholic kids got, I don't know how they got there. 
but they got to the town next door where the Catholic Church was. It almost sounds like Winooski. Yeah. Winooski, I mean, Winooski sounds very similar in some ways by how it's set up geographically and this small like that. And then tell us about the Methodist Church. Was your was your family involved? Was this your siblings? Yeah, my family, family was very involved. My mother always was. I was, you know, from whenever I was old enough or big enough, I was in the choir, various choirs. And um, my, I can almost remember, you know, Methodists turn over their ministers about every four years or so. Mm -hmm. And um, so I can almost remember all of them. And um, I still have my Sunday school pin, which is like a straight, I should have pulled it out for today. It's the little tags that you put on. And back in the day, when we went away in the summer, if we went somewhere, if I went to my grandmother's or our family took a vacation, uh, we had to come back with a certificate saying that we'd been to, been to church, been to Sunday school <laughs> in order to get that next pin because you had to have year-round perfect attendance um gosh uh methodist you know when i got older it was methodist youth fellowship that was a big deal and um big source of my social interactions mm -hmm. uh, friends from uh not just my own local group, but all the neighboring groups. So it was, you know, it was a suburban area and all the towns butted up to one another. And so you could hardly tell when you went from one to the next. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's and, very much like that area. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then summers, I went to my grandmother's a lot. And she lived in Paoli, Pennsylvania, which was across the Delaware River. And she would always take me to church on the train with her on Sunday. And that was the Bryn Mawr Presbyterian Church. And it's notable that the minister at that time in those years was um, my husband, John's uncle. But of course, I didn't know John then, and I didn't know that then, but <laughs> it's not he was. It's a small world. It is a small world. It is a small world. You, you're from a big family. Mm. You had quite oh. a few siblings. Um, I guess that I guess that you were the oldest before you told me. <laughs> um, and and your your family had you know what I would imagine was a blessing and a real challenge, and that you, the sister just younger than you had Down syndrome. Can you share a little bit about what that was like? Yeah, um, I would say that was the beginning of my mother's inability to cope maybe maybe it was before and i just didn't know it but but she it, life was a bit of a, a stretch for her a challenge and so um she was frequently stretched out on her bed and so i was the oldest and i was also responsible and uh, so my dad would get up every morning and wake us all up um, cook breakfast for us and send us off to school. And my sister, who was five years younger, uh, lived at home with us for maybe till she was about five. I, know, I don't remember any longer. But the um, advice then was that she should go to a school. Um, and where we lived, that was the Vineland School, uh, which happens to have been where Pearl Buck's daughter was. Mm -hmm. And so every Sunday we'd pile in the car and drive there and go visit. And um, I, I don't know, it taught me lots of things that, you know, there were things that I can acknowledge I didn't like about it. And uh, things I learned to be charitable about. And um, it was, it was challenging was challenging a lot yeah. of guilt imposed oh in terms of your mom's reaction to yeah you know if we if we complained she'd say you should be thankful god didn't make you like that mm -hmm. yeah yeah that, that, um you know 
when there are challenges like that, you know, somebody else's health circumstance um, and then, then your mom's inability to really fully cope with that, um, you know, I, I am guessing that you have, you've carried forward some pain from that, but also some courage and knowledge and, you know, ability to, to function that was, you know, create, that was created in that situation. Um, your youngest sibling was born when you were a teenager. So you were, you were really, you know, kind of a spread out group of people. Were you really involved with helping to raise your younger, younger siblings? Just, no, really, just my sister, just uh, sister. nine years younger than me. Yeah. And she, she and I are really close friends and have been all along. And um, uh, so she was like, like my little doll. We used yeah. to make clothes for her and <laughs> things like that. Oh, great. Um, since we talked about your mom, I, when we, when we discussed this the other day, you talked about the end of your mom's life where she came up here to be at the Converse home. And um, you talked about some, some blessings in that experience. Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I was, I am really, really grateful for that because, um, you know, to, to give you a backdrop, my sister and I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Um, and, you know, we wanted to be off on our own and out of that house. So we were, the minute we went, went minute we were done high school, we were gone and didn't come back really, except to visit. And, um, and so my mom and I were not the best of friends. Uh, it was, you know, in some families it's understood that you will take care of the older generation when, when it's required. Um, there are various ways to define take care of. And it was pretty clear to me by how it was with my grandparents. And uh, I it never entered my head that my mother would live with me or that I would take care of her in that way. Uh, same with my sister and same with my brothers. Um, so when it came time, I was the one who um, wasn't working anymore. And um, my brother and my sisters still, sister and brothers still were. So um, when mom needed to, when, when she couldn't protest anymore, that, that's mm -hmm. what I will say, um, she moved up here at, to the Converse home. And that's, that's another church-related thing because Mary Ellen Spencer was the executive director then, and they did not let people in to their dementia care unit directly from the outside. They, people, you had to kind of graduate up in from within. Mm -hmm. And so it was because of my relationship with Mary Ellen that, that mom was allowed to come there and you know we had some understandings, but it was a good thing. And ultimately, um, almost right from the get-go, she was, it was the first time in my life that she showed appreciation and uh, kind of peace and contentment about where she was in her life. Mm -hmm. um, and I was there, I had five of those kind of years with her, visiting her, being able to communicate, and um, it was good. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you sharing that. I think it's important, it's an, important for all of us to know that there can be hope in relationships at other stages that we aren't anticipating. So if we can, if we can be open to it, um, you know, what, what a lovely, what a lovely experience for you to, to feel that connection with your mom. Um, I want to go back to your grandparents because they were really special to you. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about them and what, what your visits with them meant to you? Well, they were great. I actually, both my um, paternal grandmother who lived in the town, uh, I, because I lived in such a small town, we went to a Thai school in a neighboring town. And so uh, again, this comes into the expectation of, of care for, your, for the older generation. So mm -hmm. she was, back in the day, they called a shut-in. And mm -hmm. I don't think I ever understood really why she couldn't go out except that 
she didn't. And um, so I would go to her house every Wednesday for lunch. I could walk from the high school to her house and she would make lunch for me and, um, and we, would, we would have a visit. And then every year at, over the Thanksgiving vacation, she engaged me. I mean, I had a bazillion cousins. She had eight children, um, but she would get me to come there and wrap all of the Christmas presents for all of the, the cousins and the family. So that was, I had this, you know, she was kind of a, she was one of those people who everyone now will tell you, she always said children should be seen and not heard. So mm -hmm. that was her, but, but we had a, we had a good time together. I enjoyed her and enjoyed those times with her. And then uh, my maternal grandparents lived in Paoli and um, we would go there in the car many Sundays for Sunday dinner. And then in the summers, I'd go and stay there with them. And I learned about gardening, vegetable gardening from my grandfather and flower gardening from my grandmother. And um, then my grandfather was a conductor for the Pennsylvania Railroad. Mm -hmm. So he would take me to work with him. Nice. And his, his daily run was from Philadelphia to um, uh, 30th Street, no, uh, Pennsylvania Station in New York. Mm -hmm. and so many great adventures because there would always be a layover between the trip to New York and then the return trip back. And so he took me around sightseeing in New York City and we had lots of fun. And, uh, and then my, you know, I just always knew that whatever I was, was okay there. Mm -hmm. I didn't have to, there was no judgment and no expectation other than we all got along together. So I enjoyed it. Nice. I love that picture of you going into New York City while he, he's doing his job and you're going in on the train. I think it would be a great basis for a children's book, you know, with different adventures happening in the city. I just think it would be great. Um, you, you know, you had all this involvement with church and the, the, the Bible passage that you've lifted up is from Micah. Can you just, you know, I'm picturing you finishing high school, You've been really involved with church. You've had some challenges, but that's your guide. Um, can you talk to me about what does that the passage in Micah mean to you? Um, the the balance of justice and kindness and walking humbly. Um, the the walking humbly part I think comes from being growing awareness, because we, we're not born that way, um, of, of our privilege. And that's all relative wherever we are in our lives and, and you know, however our life is, but there's always some privilege and, and the, the humbleness and the privilege, I think, go together. Mm -hmm. um, and the older I get, the more I am informed by that. The um, doing justice part was an important part of your life. You um, you were in, you've been involved with advocacy efforts for for quite some time, um, and you were at the the march on Washington. What what stood out in that remembering that that day that experience for you? Oh my goodness, it was hot. <laughs> <laughs> that I will never forget. It was hot, and we were packed in there shoulder to shoulder. Um, no, it's, I, I went with my first husband and his brother and my former sister-in-law and uh, she and I are still friends to this day. And um, it's, it was just something that we did. We had all been at Duke University together and then we uh, resettled and um, they lived in New York City and we lived um, in Massachusetts. And, we and there, there you were. Yeah. The, I, I, that was a, just such a great day. I heard so much about it. You know, my, my grandmother and my father were there. And uh, that was right before the, the birth of my sister that my father was there, too. It was quite something. So I just, I think that's wonderful that 
that you have were active in that way. So you um, you went down to Duke. You married your high school sweetheart. You had a couple of kids. You moved back to Massachusetts, and for a while you were a single parent. Um, I was a challenging a challenging road for a while. Um, can you can you tell us you know how you kind of how did you get through that experience? Um, you know, at the time, that, that was probably, in, in retrospect, in reflection, the hardest time in my life. Mm -hmm. um, the, the rejection of that. And, but then it was going to be, you know, that's where that justice thing and fairness thing rose up in me. I thought, well, you know, this, what he did is not fair. And what we are going to do is the right thing. And uh, so I talked with my kids who weren't, oh, maybe sixth grade and third grade, maybe. And I said, we have a choice to make. We can not do this, this, and this, and not spend money in these ways, but we can stay in the house. And so we all agreed to stay put in the house, which we did until I married John and moved to Vermont. And uh, then I, you know, I had, a, I got a job and went, drove into Boston every day, worked at a big medical center in Boston and um, went to Northeastern University part-time and worked on finishing up my degree. And um, now I think with horror about the things my kid did, kids did unsupervised. <laughs> I, if my grandchildren were doing those things now, I would be outraged. But um, it was necessary. They checked in by phone at, you know, every afternoon when they got home from school, called me at work. Uh, and in the summertime, they rode their bikes to uh, the summer camp that they went to. My daughter was a junior counselor and my son was a camper. And they rode their bikes there every day on country roads um, from where we lived in North Andover. But my goodness, um, now I think about it and all kinds of things. Nowadays, you, would, you wouldn't even, even consider that, but they were fine. I'm guessing they, they I, yeah, I'm sure they can remember the part of that was, that was really hard, but I, I'm guessing that they kind of liked being able to just take care of themselves sure like that. <laughs> Some blessings out of that. Do you do you want to share anything about your um, meeting John? Oh yeah, uh, John. John and I met on a blind date, and um, we had uh, a colleague of John's um, who was his counterpart at Mass General, and he was. For those of you who don't know, he was here at the at the medical center. Um, and his counterpart at Mass General, and he had been to John, been at, done their fellowship together at Johns Hopkins, so that's how they knew each other. And uh, John was in Boston for a meeting and went to um, his colleague's house for dinner, and his colleague was also divorced and seeing a woman who was a friend of mine in North Andover. And um, she and I had met earlier so, uh, I don't know, a year or so earlier, at one of, we had by chance both gone to a Parents Without Partners meeting, and we went in there, and we left early, and we just walked outside, and we said, what a bunch of losers, and so <laughs> um, she and I, we, our children were the same age, in the same grades in school, in the same school system, and um, we, the, we, the two couples have been best friends ever since until John died. And um, the thing of it was that night that it was a Saturday and it was early, early, early spring. And I was working with a friend on her old wooden sailboat to get it ready to go in for the season. And, uh, you know, scraping the bottom and putting this copper paint on the bottom of the boat. And, um, my friend called up and said, would you like to come? And Ken has a friend in town from Vermont 
who's recently been divorced and I rolled my eyes and I said, oh my God, not another one. And um, drove into Boston, but I was late. I had copper paint under my fingernails and um, we got there and come midnight, nearly midnight, my friends Ken and Gussie are saying, it's just like an efficiency apartment in Boston where he lives and she's staying there with him. And they're, you know, like, okay. And John had originally planned to drive back to Vermont that day. And so then it seemed, well, that was too late to do that. I said, well, he could stay at my house because I had the, the den. So he followed me back to my house in North Andover. And I walked in and the kids had had friends over watching TV. The, you know, the couch in the den was covered with food and uh, it was, the whole thing was really embarrassing. And so I, you know, quickly cleaned it up, got it ready for him. He and I ended up staying up till about three o'clock in the morning drinking tea and talking. And then all I could think of, I never did sleep, was I got to get up early and get him out of here so the kids don't see him. And um, so I did and he did. And the remarkable thing is that the next day, this was a Sunday that he left, the next day, Monday, in my mailbox in Massachusetts was a letter that he wrote and mailed in Vermont when he got back. And the rest is history. Yeah, I just, I love that story. And I know that was a wonderful letter. Yeah. <laughs> so pretty soon you're married and in Vermont and you have seven new stepchildren. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you and John had a, a long period of time of some real joy and happiness together before he was ill. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of fun. Yeah. We both worked, we both traveled. We did a lot, it was good, it was good. How did you, um, and, and you, did, you worked at the medical center up here, Janice? I worked at the medical school, yeah, in orthopedics. Mm -hmm. I what was, kind of work did you do? I was the research administrator, so I wrote grants, went to Washington to find money and, um, helped keep the faculty doing the grants on the straight and narrow. I'm, I know you were good at that. <laughs> I think that's great. they wanted to spend the money how they wanted to spend it instead of how the grant said they were supposed to. Well, that's how you keep that grant money coming. You have to meet those grant requirements, right? Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't mess up with that. I'm, I, I'm sure you were the right person for that. Um, I at some point you connected with first church and it john had been a john was friends with some of our older members who are still involved now john and charlie church and dave jenkins and um mr martin was their sunday school teacher when they were kids mm -hmm. he was in the choir and then he like lots of people drifted away well he went away he was away a lot and then when he came back and had all his family um, they turned up every Christmas Eve, but that was, that was about it. And then when I, uh, John and I were together and I worked, as I said, in orthopedics, John Frymoyer was my department chair. He was my boss. And that was when Gordon Stearns came and John said, come on. And so he got me to come to choir and that's, that's how I came. So, I mean, and that's, that's, the choir's really been at the center of your experience at the, at the church, but you have contributed in so many ways. Is there any, any aspect of um, the, well, actually, I'd, I probably want to ask you specifically to talk about your work with the Partners in Pastoral Care team, because you really helped to lead that effort that's kept pastoral care um, really active throughout of our, all of our leadership changes. Could you talk a little bit about how you've used your your experience and skills in, in that arena for the church? Uh, you know, it just, it, it just kind of fell in. It just evolved. I mean, I, I need to say that um, Peter Cook deserves credit for having launched past, uh, Partners in Pastoral Care. Um, it, it really wasn't something that existed before that. 
-hmm. and um, and I'm very proud to be part of it. And I think everyone, Janice Claypool, you, Michael, we it's it's a real real village team, and everybody brings something different to the table. And uh, there's so many gifts, and um, I just think it's a wonderful team, and um, and a wonderful effort. And if somebody gets left out or missed, we're very sorry, and it's only because we didn't know about it. Um, mm -hmm. um, but other than that, we try we try to reach out in whatever ways most appropriate. And now that we're down to one minister, it's um, it's, it's even more important, I think, because we're able to kind of triage the needs across the congregation um, so that the ones that are most important for clergy are the ones that get, get handed off to Alyssa. Other than that, we try to take care of it. And I think people have gotten more comfortable with that over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just, I've, I've had the joy of being behind the scenes and seeing, um, you know, the number of meals that get delivered to people and the visits and the communications and the phone calls and the, um, you know, just the care and the, and the counsel that's been available to so many people through so many difficult circumstances. And uh, you've really been at the center of that original vision and then helping it develop over time. And it, it's really an important lay ministry at the church. And it's, I can't even imagine the transitions of leadership without having had that in place. So, you know, really kudos and thanks to you, Janice, for that consistent care in, in, uh, in doing that. Your husband, John, was ill for, seriously ill for about five years before he died and you cared for him. Um, you know, certainly a, a big challenge. Um, can you talk about that from the perspective of being a member of the church and, and, and you know, how, how was that experience for you connecting um, with the congregation? It was, uh, you know, the choir was at the heart of it. Um, the members of the choir and let me see, all of you, all of you except one, we'll remember um, Myrna Phelps, Myrna Kinsey. And she was, she was just amazing and she just was on it uh, from the get-go and was thoughtful in when John was able to be out uh, inviting us uh, to come for brunch on Sunday after church or that kind of thing. And um, Bob was great at, in later times when John just couldn't get out at visiting. And um, at the very end, um, the last Christmas Eve, or right before the last Christmas Eve, Bob came to the house and he'd had a visit with John. And as he was leaving, and then John had a thought and he asked to be baptized again. And so Bob came in and, and did that. And it was really, you know, touching. And then John was in church that last Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That that baptism must have really been a lovely experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Sorry, just really thinking about that and what you know what you walked through being a caregiver for those five years and how important that was for him. Um, what did you What did you learn about yourself and your as a as a person of faith and as a as a woman, being a caregiver for that amount of time? I can I can tell you the conversation John and I had uh, because it was difficult. I mean something was wrong. We, we could tell. I knew that, and he didn't want to know that, but I think he did know it. And uh, so I was keeping a. Um, a sort of journal, a list of things that I observed. And finally, we went, uh, we had lots of friends who were doctors and one who was a pediatric neurologist in Albany, a good friend. <clears throat> and he, I we were talking on the phone and he said, I have a friend 
who specializes in those things, would you like me to set something up? And John said, yes, I would. And I didn't know what those things were. Well, you know, I learned and now I know. Um, but um, we drove to Albany and he saw that. And by then I had my list of stuff that John gave me permission to share. And, and, and he diagnosed John right away with the, it's the same disease that Dudley Moore had. Um, it looks a lot like Lou Gehrig's disease. And it's a, in the same family of little known neurodegenerative diseases, but same cellular breakdowns in the brain on the spectrum with Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and a bunch of other stuff in between. And um, none of it nice. And so the doctor was very candid with John and he said, most of my patients, uh, what did he say? He said, I've had patients who've lived as long as seven years. So we, and there's, there was no treatment and nothing to be done except make the best of it. And so driving home from, the first thing John said to me was, promise me you'll never put me in a nursing home. And I don't know where it came from, but I just said, I can't make that promise. Um, but never, it never came to that. And, and it's one day at a time. And so things I would have assumed I never, ever could do in the way of hands-on caregiving, I did do. And he and I did together. And he was always gracious. He never complained. The only thing he ever complained about was part of this disease is vision and double vision. And he was a radiologist. It made him crazy. Yeah. It just made him really crazy. And he always wanted to fix that. And there was no fixing it. Yeah. I... I want to say that I really value that you were honest right in that moment with him. And my, what the way I hear that conversation is that it would give him confidence that you would tell him the truth. So he could keep talking to you and keep, you know, sharing his experience with you and that you were going to be, you know, dealing with this together. Um, I'm going to ask you about one other topic before I invite other people into the conversation. And that is about this time, as somebody who's worked in the healthcare arena, who knows a lot about caring for people, who, I mean, Janice, you are you're an amazing resource about the different ways that people can access care and services. Because um, I know that's part of how you cared for him so long at home, is you really learned about all of the, the resources in the community and advocated for those services to be improved. Tell me about this experience now, about the pandemic. How, how are you experiencing it? What are your thoughts about it for us? Well, well, aren't we all in struggling with this? I was just this morning visiting with my son and daughter-in-law um, in Virgins and um, just you know, sitting out on the lawn in there. She's a paraeducator and he's a teacher. And so that you know, they're talking about that their daughter is a teacher, uh, my stepdaughter is a teacher. That you know, our family's talking about all of this and what, how's it going to be, what's it going to be like, and uh, it's um, it's that that thing that we have these levels of what we want and what we think is comfortable and okay for us as an individual that rub up against um, the public good or the greater good. Mm -hmm. And how do, you keep, how do you keep that in balance? And, and so we have this tiny little community here at Wake Robin, which control, you know, I often think, well, if I was still living in my condo, how would it be different? What things would I do differently? And you know, that's so hard to answer because I'm informed differently now mm -hmm. uh, because of living here. So I can't go back and say, well, if I was still living there in my condo, then they wouldn't tell me I couldn't go shopping at Target, you know? <laughs> uh, but, uh, but would I want to go shopping in Target? You know, and it's it, either those, those kinds of things. And we were talking earlier about being in person 
in groups in the church. And probably out of all of this, what I will tell you that the hardest is about singing. Yes. It's, it's gone and who knows for how long. Mm -hmm. And performing, performing arts in general, we had a little chamber music thing here at Wake Robin out in the parking lot last night and the Craftsbury chamber players and they've made this little trailer wagon thing um, and they can sit up on it and they drive it around and they give free performances and nice. wow um, that's what that's what all these professional mu musicians are having to do it just it's very hard yeah, I mean, I think that, that the loss of music for people who sing together, I mean, that the choir is such a community and, um, and it's such a part of the life of the church that it is a real loss. And there's a lot of unknown for all of us about what will this, how long will this last? What will be deemed safe? How, you know, what, what are some different ways that we'll be able to gather? Um, living in a community like you do, you're confronted with it really directly, right? One person's choice impacts everybody and okay. you know, it's more it's more immediate janice i'm so grateful for you for sharing your story with us and your um your perspective and um you know you you are a highly valued member of our community you've given in in so many ways and and it's really appreciated i just want to open up for a conversation and and comments questions um other story anybody have a story to tell on janice <laughs> <laughs> We do. No, I, I was struck when you said that you used to go to your grandmother's and help wrap Christmas presents. I was remembering that when I broke my shoulder, you showed up at my house and wrapped Christmas presents for me because I couldn't do that. And that's just like one one immediate way of giving that, that you did for me. Small thing maybe, but it was a big thing for me then. This was a, a big part of our conversation the other day because I, I was commenting about Janice's confidence and she said, I'd like to do things. <laughs> Let's get it done, right? Yes. Anne, you unmuted yourself. I really share the loss of singing with you. It just uh, just like a whole piece of life is gone. <laughs> but I really appreciate <clears throat> that you have helped us as a choir kind of find ways to get together and um, facilitated David doing that. And uh, and you know, I think um, you've, been <laughs> you've been great at trying to encourage more and more people to do it. And I, um, I consider that you are a real <laughs> role model that I try to follow in, <laughs> in that, but. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> That's, and you and you and Doug were the first ones to master the technology. And uh, I want, you know, Diana, come on. Yeah, Diana. <laughs> I will, I will. It, it was really, the first, at first it was the technology and then it was the horror of hearing myself sing alone. Yeah, and, exactly. <laughs> It's really so true. Lucy got it is you can toss the video and make another one. All right. <laughs> Lucy, you were saying what a resource Janice is. Um, I always tell people when I need to have a community resource, I go directly to Lucy. And when I need a medical resource, I go directly to Janice. <laughs> it's great to have two people in my life that I, I don't have to open a book. You know, I just go right straight to the two of you. <laughs> and uh, I have all the knowledge I need. Uh -huh. Diana? Oh, boy. Um, I could say I go, I don't go always straight to Janice because I know she's, I feel she's so busy. I don't like that word, but she's so involved. But I cannot tell you the number of times when I've needed something and Janice has been there. It's as though she sort of intuits Mm. intuits what I might need and let's sit down and have a cup of coffee or let's talk because we were out in the old uh, north end together for a while and we share music and when I had the questions with Jim when his health was declining she was such a resource both mm. for the emotional stuff that I was going through and the medical stuff 
and we just have a good time together too. I just love talking with her and sharing anything we go out and do together. And um, we do share that I was a classmate of her husband's first wife. Oh, um, what was her first name? Um, Carol. Carol Moser. 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 Yeah. Oh, Carol Moser. Yeah, Carol yeah. Moser. And when we found that, all of a sudden it went snap. I was at a party in high school with John Clements and his buddy. And all of a sudden I felt like I knew I knew more about her and I felt closer to her. And um, it's been just absolutely wonderful. And it's interesting because when Jim could still go out, Janice was the one that would invite us, include us in dinner parties. And that was so important. Um, but I hear your story now, Janice, and you had had someone do the same for you. And, and that being together as a couple in those trying years is very important. So anyway, she's a gem. You're a gem. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I think that that theme of um, both the, the real value of community, of the invitation into faith and the strong beliefs and values coming from that, and also that that somebody who believes in you, who sees value in you, and it might be as a child or a teenager, but you know, when you're dealing with a life challenge and they make sure that you're included, that the importance of that has come through in many of these conversations and including today. And I, I think it just really reinforces, you know, the, the message in the sermon this weekend is if you're looking for God, don't look up, look around. Mm -hmm. I, when Alyssa said that, I just thought, you know, that is, that just captures a feeling that I think is so important and a truth that's so important. Does anybody else have a, a question or a comment that they want to share? I got Patty, one. You, um, there. I got one. Um, okay. Janice, and then you're next, Patty. <laughs> Janice, you um, were so giving of playing the piano at different places when I was back in the Deacons, I think. And we were going to different places and oh there's Janice she's gonna play the piano and it, it was just wonderful that you came to do that and um it was another time out of your life that you chose to do something that makes you happy and like me being on the deacons and being in that kind of a set uh, setup was a very meaningful to me too so um, it was nice to be able to. Oh, Janice, you, you did a wonderful job supporting the nursing home worship that we used to do. That was that was uh, a real gift. Yeah, it, it is. It was. It's very difficult to do something like that, especially when you're all, always so quiet and so kind of meek and didn't think you had it in you that you could do it. And that just proved that yeah, I can do it. And, you know, the people that were helping me were just, just as good for me to be there. So I, I thank you for playing the piano. I thank you for what you do now. Uh, I know when I've had some problems to you, you've been very, very quiet and thinking out before you come back with an answer. And, you know, I could always bank on that. Well, what would you do? What would anybody do? You know, it was just, you had a, a gift of being, being there and helping us all through everything. Thank you, Janice. I, I want to make sure okay. to give time to Patty. Okay. So Janice, the list just keeps getting longer and longer for what you do for all of us at First Church. You coordinate um, the Women's Book Club. So we have our oh, yeah. books all set, our dates all set. Uh, it's, it's amazing what you have put together with the technology and, and to get everybody involved. Um, it, it's, you know, just one of the long, long lists of what you have done for us. And I thank you so much. <laughs> oh, Patty, that's a, it's a great comment. And Janice, that's a good reminder to me to get that book group list um, published. <laughs> So that people who haven't started to participate in the book group can get ready for September's book. 
So thank you. Thank you both for that. Yeah. Um, I'm really grateful for this time today. Uh, thank you so much, Janice. And um, the next two weeks, Spirit Seekers, Spirit Seekers is taking a little bit of a, a hiatus for the rest of August, and we'll be back in September. And I'm just really excited to continue the series. We're going to have some new twists in September, so watch for that. And uh, I, I hope you feel baited with high interest to see what, what's coming next. I'm excited about it. So, Janice, thank you so very much. And um, thank you, Lucy, I'm, for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. I'm going to close from um, this book, Meditations for Women Who Live Their Lives Well. Right, Donna? That's what that says. <laughs> Women who do too much. Um, and Lucy, I would like to say thank you for doing this for us. Yes, this is oh, absolutely. Really a really inspiring group. Um, I, I just love it. I love it. Oh, good. Every Friday thank afternoon. Yeah. She's a regular Barbara Walters. <laughs> so here's here's a quote from Mary Jean Iron. Um, Normal day. Let me be aware of the treasure you are. Let me learn from you. Let me love you, bless you before you depart. Let me not pass you by in quest of some rare and perfect tomorrow. Let me hold you while I may, for it may not always be so. One day I shall dig my nails into the earth or bury my face in the pillow or stretch myself taut or raise my hands to the sky and want more than all the world the return of this normal day. Janice, thank you for sharing your life with us. It's very inspiring. God bless everyone. See you in September. Watch the newsletter for all the exciting details. Okay. Gonna miss you two weeks. Thank you, Janice. Good to see everybody. Yep. Donna. Okay. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs>